לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed in New York City. Great to see you guys. What can I tell you? This is um, a great Parsha, amazing Parsha, as always, uh, filled with things that we truly have to wrestle with. Wow. Oh, wow. I'm not as good as you, Barry, in the pun department. Okay. Vaishlach Yaakov Jacob sends messengers ahead to his brother. Jacob is coming back. From Lavan, from Haran, uh, it's been 20 years. He's built his whole family. He's minus one child at this point, 12 boys, one girl. Uh, sorry, 11 boys, one girl at this point. And he has to confront his brother. And, um, you know, the Bible's filled with with the, the important symbolism. It's the boundary. It's uh, the river. Um, and he has a... a uh, a delegation. The deleg- he, he, he sends his brother a message. Hi, I'm home. Ko Amar Abdechai Yaakov, to my Lord Esav, thus says your servant Jacob, I stayed with Lavan and remained until now. I have acquired cattle, asses, sheep, and male and female slaves, and I send this message to my Lord in the hope of gaining your favor. He speaks very loftily to Esav, and I haven't thought about that, but I'm for another time, what the 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 the, the his messengers come back and they say, "Banu malachicha, we've 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 gone to your brother to Esav, become olech likrotcha, and he knows you're coming." And therefore, <laughs> well, so what's so important here is that when we think about Avraham going to rescue Lot in the battle of the kings, he took three hundred and eighteen men to fight nations. Yeah, and Esau is coming with even a larger troop. So Jacob is justifiably concerned, although I suspect this is just who Esau is. You know, this is who he travels with. He's, you know, he's the leader of the pack. pack. He's the leader of a pack. Jeremy, are you you, more or less charitable? You don't think that, uh, that this, this detail is just describing Esau's general clan? No, I think this is, I think it's saying, you know, uh, he's coming with 400 guys and he, and he remembers that whole, Trick with the soup. No, I, I think that he's with 400 guys probably because he is a nomad. But he's not really s- described as a farmer ever, as far as I remember. Jacob is the same. Both of these guys, I mean, we, we know that the... But this is know. who he's traveling, right? These we, are... He, this is his clan. 
Yeah, is but it, I think that this is his clan um, with with four hundred, you know, male uh, four hundred male retainers. Um, I mean, we, we know by the way, you're, you're right. He doesn't seem to be a farmer because neither is Jacob or or uh, you know Yitzhak is described as planting a Israel. They are they are uh, they're pastoralists. So yeah, that's right. He is he's a Bedouin. He does have his he's a roetzon. He's got he's got his sheep. But um, I think that's supposed to be an intimidating thing, and Jacob is, is appropriately intimidated. Okay. Uh, he's, he's terribly, terribly frightened and troubled, and there's that wonderful rabbinic midrash. Uh, why, why the doubled verb? Why, why terribly frightened and also troubled? Why not just one verb? He's afraid lest he be killed, and he was troubled lest at the thought that he might have to kill others. So that's great. It's a great little you know, twist. That's where Golda Meir got her line from. No, I um, but, but, but I just want to add one thing. The reason why he has 400 men is because of his lifestyle. You travel with everyone. You can't leave anyone. There's no place to leave the other people. When you go out to meet your brother, you're just traveling. Well, I want to take issue with, with nothing here, except that, or maybe just, you know, flesh out the, the picture here, which is that he's also got, how many wives at this point? He's got four wives, I think, right? Two. Asa. Yeah. Three, Yanko. right? No, Jacob. He has three. He has two, two locals and the daughter of Ishmael. And the daughter of Ishmael. Okay, so he's got three wives. Okay, and let's face it, that's significant. So, so Jacob has four. He's got three, and the text is silent here about any offspring, but not later. He does have offspring later, and the text is quite elaborate. About he has twelve. Right, he has but, one more at this time than Jacob does. Exactly. So, so we'll hold off on that because you know I have a theory about this. But anyway, so this this remarkable moment where Jacob is is expressing his fear, and um, uh, he says um, he turns to God. God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Adonai, God. You have told me to return to my land and to my birthplace. And you will be good with me. Beautiful song now in Israel. I'm not worthy. I'm small. Katonti. Of all the goodness and kindness that you've given to me. I walked over. I crossed over the Jordan with my staff. Now I'm two camps. So, so I mean, is that how would you characterize that that uh, that prayer or that uh, supplication? Is he? Is he? I like the word katonti. I mean, it's I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of all the goodness that you've given me. Right? It's kind of pathetic, really. What? Yeah. So. I think that he's troubled because of all the patriarchs, Jacob comes with the most psychological baggage, which we don't always pay attention to when we try to unpack the events of his life. He has not seen his brother for 20 years. He remembers the last time he saw him, he Esau had a murderous rage, either real or imagined. And now he's coming back and he's not sure if, he has what it takes. 
And, you know, the curious thing, why does he divide his camp into two? Because he's pretty sure he's going to lose half. Yeah. Right? If you really want to protect it, you keep the camp together. There's safety in numbers. Seriously? When you oh, divide yeah. it, you're already conceding that you're losing, your casualty rate is expected to be very well, high. Survivors. So, so, so maybe he should have gone on by himself and, and kept everybody else. Well, but then, you know, it's very hard to puzzle out the geography here. But it seems that Jacob sends everyone across the river into the land. And he's going to stay on the other side of the river, the non-Canaanite part, the non-Israel part, yes. where he's going to have the encounter with the angel. Well, you know, right? actually, so he actually sends everyone in front of him because, you know, in the colloquial language, he's scared and you can fill in the blanks. Well, first of all, I just want to say a couple of things about that. Number one, um, I'm looking up here. I'm trying to find. If I'm not mistaken... Okay, um, you know, you talk about the uh, what do you call it the um, the non Canaanite side, you know, and it sounds like they're crossing the Jordan. Well, the Yabok is in fact the modern Zarka River. Yes, yeah, it's, it? it's an east-west river, right? It it's divides. an east-west river. So it's, yeah. he's not crossing between Eretz Yisrael or Chutz Laaretz. He's not. It's not. He's entering the land of Israel or being outside of it. It, he's he's north or south of an east-west river, so it just seems to be that it is the, uh, you know, uh, some sort of a border in Asav's territory. But about his fear, th this is super interesting. I mean, it 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 does seem he's worried about the four hundred men. He's worried that, that he's going to get killed, or perhaps less than he killed. He he does. I'm not sure that that's not uh, kind of canny to to divide the troops. So divide his 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 is his family so that even if one you know at least somebody will survive but the, the most creative clever uh uh commentary by by one of the classicals you know the rush bomb rashi's grandson or shmuel ben meir of the 12th century says you know the, he, he goes across the river and there's the angel is there he's left there why did he go back across the river after he'd sent everybody across because he was running away he was trying to get the hell out of there and leave everybody to Esau's mercy. And the angel wrestled with him uh, to make him not run away. <laughs> I just think that's an extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily, little, you know, counterintuitive. Maybe misses some of the power. So of what's interesting there past. then is that Jacob identifies the angel with with God, right? He says, "I've seen humans and divine beings." And then what you're suggesting, perhaps, is that what makes Jacob stand up and fight so to speak is god that he doesn't have it within himself to do it alone because he's not really quite who he thinks he is but he needs god's help which is a stunning admission for him because the last time you mentioned yeah. god he was making his deal about the 10 percent. okay so yeah. let's go the, the idea that rewind for a second he yeah. says his prayer hatsileni na I, I i differ with you in your interpretation although it's great interpretation to think about which is that is you know I don't think he's pathetic here. I think that he's 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 undergone his own transformation. He is now there's a certain humility about him. He he recognizes. Look, I just I just used this uh, verse in a, in a eulogy. So so the katonti is a a sense of gratitude, a sense of a sense of of you know I, I'm not worthy of what I've received in life, and and I think you know that's not pathetic. That's just a, a sense of gratitude. But but 
and there's real fear, and 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 it's not only fear; it's terror. He's he's terrified, and and maybe strategically, it may not be the best thing to do, but but okay. then he does a strategic thing, which is he he, he goes to sleep, and then he he sends a present. He sends a present, and what's the present? Two hundred goats, two hundred she goats, twenty he goats, two hundred ewes, twenty rams, thirty milk camels on their coast, forty cows and ten bulls, ten she, twenty she asses and ten he has. And I and I just taught this this week, so so you know, people who watch this can access this in my class that I recorded on YouTube. Because it's the the ratios between female to male is very significant. Okay, for the masculine ego. You know, it's, it's, what is it? Uh, 200 she goes to 20 he goes. That's a 10 to 1 ratio. That's pretty good. Right. But you have to think like an agronomist, I guess. You don't need that many males for a flock. You need the females. You do. And this is the point. This is not, not the joke point, not that like the masculine in joke. It's, I'm sending you a starter flock. Okay. Because I, Jacob, have I am a man with a family and a, and a whole you know slew of sheep and animals and lots and lots of possessions. I'm coming over the, the 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 Jordan now. I'm coming over to you with my whole retinue. Okay, you too. It's like an advertising. You also can be a man. You also can be a family man. You also can be a nation. You can be a nation. Here right. you are. Jacob has gotten the message. There's 400 men. He's an army. He's a gang leader, basically. And so what he, the message, the subliminal message in the gift to Esau is, you too could be worthy of maybe not the covenantal blessing that God, that, that God has given to Abraham, that gave to Isaac, gave to me, but you can give, as Ben Summer just said, you know, recently in our, you know, scholar residency, a, a parallel kind of destiny which will be a nation. And lo and behold, by the end of the Parsha, Esav, if you look at chapter 36, verse 6, Vayikach Esav et nashav et banav et Esav takes his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his cattle, his livestock, the property he acquired in the land of Canaan and went to another land because of his brother Jacob. And I'm going like, where, where do we learn? Where do we get the idea that he's got a flock? Where do we get the idea that he's a family? All of a sudden, by the end of the parsha, Esav is a mirror image of Jacob. Esav is the nation. Esav's okay. got, he's got his flocks. Esav's got lots and lots of things. And so what Jacob has done brilliantly, in a way that I'm, you might agree with me in this, and saying like, yeah, he's acting with subterfuge, with guile, with conniving, you know, manipulation, the way he always is. He manipulated Esau and taught him that in order to be a figure in the Middle East, you have to have a nation. Okay, so what I would say, Elliot, is that the way you presented it heightens for me how pathetic Jacob really is. He hasn't seen his brother for 20 years, and he's thinking, you know, Esau Nebuch, maybe times have been bad for you. Let me help you with my great wealth. Well, it's not not that he's been there for 20 years. He was always a more resourceful person than I was. Yes. And therefore, he should be quite successful now. There's no reason to think he isn't. What's he's not sending him a starter flock. He's not sending him a starter flock. He's sending him a bride because even now he's concerned that I was wrong, you were right, 
you were always stronger than me, and mommy's not here to protect me. I, I, I don't know why, Elliot, I don't know why you would feel, again, this, the starter flock thing seems strange to me because, because you, you know. I've got uh, a whole YouTube now on this. <laughs> well, oh, you can take it says, out. When, when Asaph says, uh, people keep calling me here. When, it says, Yeshli Rav. Uh, Yeshli Rav means I'm doing just fine. I mean, mute what here is I'm second. doing just fine, you know. So 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 is Mr. White in Breaking Bad. He was doing just fine, you know. He's a gang, you know. The, the, these you can be doing just fine by by being ahead of a gang, also. But you know, also the other thing you have to keep in mind, Elliot. I think is that you know when you were narrating your your version, which I thought was quite quite intriguing. It reminded me of looking at American history from the point of view of the white European settlers and the Native Americans. Yeah. And from the white European settlers we came, we found this people, they were uncivilized, they were uncultured, they were uncouth, and we made them into people. And what do the Native Americans talk about? They talk about the Trail of Tears. Right? Because you mistreated us, you brutalized us, and We'll tell our own story. Thank you. So I think you have to take a little bit with a grain of salt the story about Esau in our Torah because it's not Esau's story. You know, uh, we're going to get either this year or next to the story of Dino. We promise our listeners. We will. We'll and, get to it. We should today. And the remarkable fact of Dina's story, as I was discussing with my wife earlier when she was doing her own preparation, is that Dina doesn't say a single word. She has no story. The story is about her, but she has no voice. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's left to Midrash to 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 compose the narrative from Asaph's perspective. So so, and there is no Midrash about that. So so here I am. I'm going to say, well, you know, I we 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 all anyone who has ever read the Torah has the right and the license to leap into an imagination, provided that you can find a proof text that you can substantiate what you're saying in the text. And so what I'm saying is the fact that he appears here with 400 men and he appears there at the end of the Parsha basically as the mirror image of Jacob. He's got wives, he's got children, he's got possessions, he's got flocks, and the, the land is not big enough to hold both of them. The, you know, an echo of the Abraham Lot story. So he picks so, up and goes to say here. And that's so what's, what inter yeah. what's interesting here, though, is that at the end, it emphasizes that Esau's ancestral land is to the east. It's yeah, Edom yeah. and Seir. So even though Esau marries the locals, and apparently he's the only one entitled to marry the locals, as Ishmael did before him, but the real locals, Shechem and Hamor, they're kind of traif. His land is not going to be our land. You know, just exactly. like Abraham and Lot separated, Esau and Yaakov are already separate. So, so if you're writing the Torah from you're, you're writing an ace of Torah, okay, and and you know you you you've seen that your father is given the covenantal promise to your brother, and you go off and you marry three women and have twelve children of your own and have lots of flocks, and then you go to this other area and you say, "This is my covenantal land. This is my." promised land. This, I'm going to make a nation here. And in fact, they do. And in fact, later on in the Bible, in the book of Numbers, they're not only a nation, but they're a problem for Israel coming out of Egypt. Well, that's what the Haftarah makes. And, and that's the Haftarah. Okay, so... so but, but, just say real quick about this. You know, if you want to go in this way, one, one way that I think 
so does support you. And I, I love what you said about, uh, you know, this is how interpretation works. You don't have to prove that it's the one and only reading of the Torah. You just have to prove that it can be found in the Torah. And that, that is like how we do Midrash. Well said. Uh, but the, uh, the the fact, you know, we have this we have this name change. Jacob has gives a name change and he becomes either either as Barry said earlier, which is brilliant, you know, that he, he he's not even who he thinks he is. He's, he's actually somebody else. Talk or about, perhaps let's talk about that. So he wrestles with the angel and the angel blesses him. Barry, give us what you said. I mean, well, said, so I think what's important is that it's not that the angel blesses him, is that Yaakov asks for his blessing because it's the first time he's in his life that he could actually re receive a blessing on his own account. He's not, you know, taking the birthright for a bowl of pottage, and he's not preying on the frailties of his father to take the blessing that properly belongs to Esau. But he's fought all night with this angel. The angel has to go, and he is able to get a blessing from the angel. And then what's so striking here is that the angel's blessing is, Yaakov, you're really Israel. You're not really who you thought you were. You're someone else. And the question, though, is as we follow the rest of the Parsha, is whether that something else that he is is something good. And this would be the segue to the story about Dina, because he goes into this other land, and, um, you know, bad things happen, and he looks away. And when his sons, Shimon and Levi, take matters into their own hands, literally, he's concerned that people are going to be ticked off at him and attack him, and he won't be able to defend himself. I see. I see. In this, I mean, I mean, I, I think the idea, and I got to meditate on this, this, this whole idea. You're not who you think you are, and that that's symbolized, of course, by the name change. And the name, as we know, when you get a new name in the Torah, that's that changes your whole life, as it does, I guess, when you're not even in the Torah. <laughs> but, but, um, you know, the idea. I'm not going to let you go. Lo I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Uh, I, you know, I, I go in a different direction here. Maybe we talked about it last year, which is, like, you know, people who are in, involved in, in combat or involved in, in wrestling or involved in conflict, um, they need, they need to, they need to find a way to end the conflict when, when, when there's no, when it's a teku, when it's a tie, when it's, when there's no clear outcome, they have to, they have to come to a conclusion. And the, there's, it's a ceremonial conclusion. The blessing is a ceremony and, and, and maybe because the the assailant is unknown, you know, there he is asking for the blessing. I mean, you know, forgive me for for using the hockey metaphors, but but you know, when when the players end, I mean, we're watching. You know, some of us, you know, I dip into watch this the World Cup. I don't know what's going on, but but you know, the losers, they're playing soccer. They play soccer, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the losers lose, and the winners win. And and look at the end of the Stanley Cup, they line up and they they shake hands, okay. And the shaking of hands at the end of a conflict is a way of saying, we 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 terminate our hostility and we bless each other, okay. And so there's some, I mean, I, and here I don't want to go too deep in it, although I like what you said, Barry. I mean, that's going quite deep, which is you're not who you are. So after every conflict and then after every game, you're not who you are. Is that is that? I mean, you know, just reflect on this. From well, and then yeah, he's going to carry something physically with him for the rest of his life. Okay. He's damaged goods, right? His hip has been dislocated, however we want to understand it. 
Although I think it's worth repeating the observation that the word for tzela that appears here, which is going to be linked to the Gita Nasheh, the sciatic nerve, is also what God takes from Adam to make Eve. Yes. So there's some kind of similarity there that's worth exploring perhaps another time. Okay, but so I, wait, 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 just just one second. So he carries an injury with him all throughout his life. Okay. Well, every athlete who's ever been injured, you know, can remember the moment before and the moment after. Exactly. So then we have to quote the the Braslava Rebbe, who said that there's nothing as whole as a broken heart. Okay. And I think you know that's predicated on this text in our parsha because after the battle, when Jacob finally leaves Esau. It's going to say he goes to Shechem Shalem. He's going to be whole. And it reminded me of that great verse in uh, chapter 24, I think, or 24, where God, after Sarah's death, it says God blessed Abraham with everything. That there's something about the paradox that we have to embrace. That wholeness means, and completeness means something other than what we often think it does. It doesn't mean undamaged. It means being able to knit the damage into the fabric of yourself. Beautiful, beautiful. So that beautiful, that verse comes beautiful. after the reconciliation. There, they hug and they kiss. They, you know, and they and they 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 are together, but they're they're both they're both wounded in some way. But but I just wanted to say, you know, Ellie, to what you were saying before about Asab's own, like you're going to write the you're going to write the Asab Torah. Well, he he actually. Also, it's not a name change, but he comes into his own name. Like his, there's two descriptions of Esau that he's hairy, and he's Seir, Kaderet Seir, um, and the place where he's going to set up his clan is Seir. All this is in modern day Jordan. I, I looked at my map here. Where where is the where is the uh, book? It's uh, it comes into the Jordan. Um, just opposite uh, a settlement in the uh, north of Jerusalem. It's north, right? North. Of, it's north of Jerusalem um, in uh, in. Uh, uh, is it far, far north as Gilad? It, it's in no, no, it's not. It's it's north of Jerusalem uh, in the West Bank at a at a uh, a settlement in in uh, the territory is called Shlom Tzion. A little, little bit, teeny bit south of that, it's called da- Darnia in Jordan and Shlom Tzion. Uh, in in uh, Israel or and in the Edom and Seir or south of that. So I think Seir is probably south of that. Anyway, so his one name is he's Harry Seir, and the other name is that he's Red Edom, and he's got the uh, the the lentil stew. So there's a way of reading this if if one wanted to go this way. This is that like Jacob Yisrael is going to come into his authentic self, and maybe Esau is going to come into his authentic self. The the destiny that was planned for him is attained. But I want to suggest, Jeremy, when you're talking about the land, is that the hairy and the red could be physical descriptions of the eastern uh, the yeah. land across the river, because at night or at sunset, the mountains, the desert mountains, turn red. Yeah, and the oases look hairy because they're green. Look, I I think that Jacob wants to civilize him. I think that Esau wants the love of his mother also, and 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 we'll leave it there. Okay, so he come. He, he 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 arrives Shalem as you said that's chapter thirty three verse eighteen, uh, and 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 things just go off the rails for 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 Jacob and of course for the family, and then we're not even yet at next week but but we have to talk about what happens you know following this moment where he's 
his home, by a tzev mizbeach, he sets up a, a, an altar, she goes out. What happens? So talk about it. This terrible, terrible <laughs> moment where, where she goes out and to visit the daughters of the land, Shechem, Shechem ben Chamor, the son of Chamor, okay, aptly named, uh, and, and, and rapes her. But By the way, the, um, the, so, the, the Gemara in, in Tractate Makot says that bad stuff always happens in Shechem. And the context for that statement is that Shechem is a city of refuge. Um, so it's a place that in in the their mind um, is associated with violence. Sometimes accidental violence, like in the case of the of the you know the, the man's accidental manslayer. But that once you start saying Shechem and what's going to happen with Jacob, Joseph as well, Joseph is going to go up to Shechem. What's going to happen there? More bad stuff. So I think that there's a, a way that the Torah is like giving us. You know, if, if I said to you, like, what what would it be the same? Uh, you know. Something, something modern, um, and and he went, uh, you know, like, he went to he went to Auschwitz in Poland. You say, oh no, not Auschwitz, and you know, then then you just know that something bad was going to happen. Well, so this the, the most horrible thing happens. That, that's you know. Uh, well, what it, I think we have to really discuss what this is because one of the things that I find most disturbing about this is that I think for a modern, the language is perhaps not as clear as we would like it to be. So I think we see it as a kind of rape. Um, but I don't know that it was seen quite that way in ancient society. But what the claim of Shimon and Levi is, you don't do that to one of us, and your act is irredeemable. But we know in later Torah law that that act can be redeemed by now again to the modern year it's way off you have the the coercer the rapist marry the, the victim and live happily ever after however that might work out but I'm, I'm troubled by this idea here that there seems in shimon and levi's mind to be no redemption for what shechem does and it's not clear why that is because he's def they've defiled her well so shechem defiled her, right. and Shimon and Levi killed every single male in town. Right. So, so the question I would like to pose to you, Bar, is um, what do we think, you know, it's, it's, a great, it's a great passage because, first of all, as as you guys just said, um, the the Torah, the normative Torah law knows that when, when a rape happens of an unmarried you know, female, um, there is a financial... Uh, and and ethical duty to make it right again, as you said, a modern person would say, "Well, the rape victim is supposed to stay with the, uh, the the victimizer." No, that's crazy. But they think of it as we can make this right by promising to take care of you for the rest of your life and sustain you for the rest of your life, and you won't be poor and you won't be abandoned. It, you know, you might imagine that that a rape victim with with the attendant shame or something like that in an ancient culture, she really would have been completely helpless. And so she would have been murdered. She would have been murdered. So the apologists for this story say, look, and for the and for the law says uh, uh, the rape victim is actually murdered because the rape victim is it has has diminished the honor of the family. And so, you know, they they don't do an honor killing, God forbid, right? But but and they don't find any way to have Shechem ben Hamor you know, reclaim any kind of 
ounce of honor. So they murdered. But he's trying to because he says, and and maybe even successfully, it says he spoke to her heart. So maybe he he's trying to make it right, and maybe he even succeeds in making her feel better. I don't. We don't know that. But here's the thing: Shimon and Levi engage in this deception. They convince all of the Shemites to circumcise. They're sitting around convalescing three days later. They come in undercover night. They kill absolutely every man, as you said. Um, Jacob says, I, you, you've, you've destroyed my position here among the people of the land. They say, can we treat, our, can we, we allow our sister to be treated like a zona? And that's the end of the story. We don't know. The Torah does not tell us. It seems to me that Jacob has made a good claim. And that Shimon and Levi have made, in their own way, a good claim. Do you think that the Torah is saying, yeah, Shimon and Levi, don't stand for this. You guys are smart, clever, brave. You did a great thing. Or do we think the Torah is saying, ugh, they're so violent. They're terrible. Jacob has the idea right. He's got to try and get along with people. Well, that's Jacob's idea at the end. When we get to the blessing where he curses, um, in the guise of a bracha, he curses Shimon and Levi. But there's something insidious in what they do by making all the males become circumcised because they're offering the path of redemption. You're going to become just like us. And then Nebuch will kill everyone. Right? So Shechem and Hamor have come as close as they can to redeeming the situation. And granted, it's a terrible situation. Um, and it's, you know, I think the original word that it's spoken of is Nibala, right? It's something outrageous. And, but the question I think remains is, what do you do in a case like that? And the curious thing about Dina is that not only is she silent here, she's silent the whole rest of the Torah. There's nothing about her children, about a husband. She just is sort of like the, the orphan, so to speak, of Leah, the one girl among the 12 sons of Jacob, to whom something she, terrible happened. She's a sacrificial victim here. Is she, is she like Isaac? On whose behalf? On whose behalf? It's a good question. I mean, so I, is it the problem of the law? It's the tension of people coming to a new land and trying to settle down and figuring out how do you live with the locals and keep and you keep running against this idea that you can't live with the locals, and you know I think we see something like this play out today in the Middle East as well. Well, you know it's it's I don't know if we, I've, I've said this in, in the last couple of years, but I remember when I was at Pardes in nineteen ninety one, I guess, um, studying this, and one of the teachers, you know, American American born but living in in Efrat, you know, we talked about this, and I, the American students, I think in general felt, you know, Arur Apam Ki Az, as with Jacob's blessing about, you know, the, the blessing slash curse, uh, you know, cursed be their anger for it is so fierce. We're like just very distressed at the at the Shimon and Levi. And this one of the teachers was like, you know, it's a rough neighborhood. And if you don't fight back in a demonstrative way, you're going to be victimized further. I mean, he basically had uh you know, I mean, not to not to caricature a kind of a, especially not at this moment, given everything that's going on in Israel, but a, a kind of you know, like West Bank settler mentality about, yeah, he let's hit him where it hurts, and and I just think that the Jewish culture of Israel and the Jewish culture of America might not be well suited to be able to read this story together. Okay, the the best we could say, I think, is that killing all the men 
will prevent something worse, right? That has to be what's driving Shimon and Lee. The question is, what is that that they envision as being worse than the murder of everyone in town? I, I have one further question, which I think it's a good question. I have one further one, which is that in a Bible story, in a in the Tanakh, which loves stories about small and clever, outwit, big, dumb, and slow. You know, I think that there is a way in which the Bible loves stories in which, you know, kind of the clever Jew outwits the big, dumb Gentile and praises, you know, like Ehud and I can come up with others. Um, and I'm open to the possibility that the Bible thinks that Shimon and Levi were brave, resourceful, and and quite, quite clever. I, I think we, our conversation here is what the Bible wants from us, which is to, to really have terrible difficulty. This is not the, the moral, uh, this is not a moral guidebook for, for how you behave in these situations. There's no law here. It's completely lawless. And there's, there's, there's um, you know, massacre with, with its consequences. The consequences will, will last generations for Jacob in the land also. Uh, and and well, not really. I mean, they go down to Egypt, but but the memory of this of this of this moment will last. The way that every single massacre, you know, we 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 have a we live in a country where where there's daily shootings and daily massacres, or, or there are periodic spasms of violence, and none of these places are the same after four decades, decades afterwards. And so the place of Shechem is, you know, will will remain that place as you said before. So. But I don't think there's any normative moral message from this that we can take. And we have to be. Well, I, I think there might be one. But the other thing is, if I'm not mistaken, there's no further reference to this after Jacob says his piece. Until right. We now. never associate Shechem with Dina again. Well, it'll in it'll echo time. somewhere in later on in Joshua and Judges, I'm sure. But we have to come to our end. We're 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 we're. we're so I just want to add one piece before I conclude that there is. What the story points out is the limits of law. The claim of law is that every situation has a rational or reasoned response. And life tells us otherwise, that there are some situations that do not have a rational or reasoned response, and an alternative must be found, and sometimes that alternative is quite cruel and barbaric, except that what the alternative may actually be worse. And that might be the message here. Very, very powerful message. Okay, so this, the Parsha concludes with the the, the genealogies of Esav and, and, and Ishmael, I think, right? And, yeah, yeah, and that's only there for the Zohar. Exactly. So, so it's only there for the what? Signals, the Zohar. It signals oh, to oh, us. First of all, that's big. It's huge in the Zohar. It's very, very important. But note that Asaph's descendants include Amalek. Amalek. Yeah, but we don't want to leave on Amalek. We just want to say that this is a transition. We're now that that end coda in the parsha will transition us to next week to Joseph and and the the novella that begins this was difficult difficult parsha to to think about but we're, we're glad that people stayed with us and watched us and listened to us as we wrestled with this we wrestled <laughs> with this parsha we want to wish everyone a beautiful shabbat thank you so much for joining us send us your comments we appreciate them thank you so much for that everybody shabbat shalom shabbat shalom shalom
מאזינים לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה 102.3 FM 